Okay, welcome to episode 19 of Against Japanese Podcast. Today we are doing something a little different,、um, a sort of a special kind of emergency episode, if I can call that,、uh, because the, the state funeral for、uh, deceased, assassinated Abe Shinzo. Uh, is coming up on September 27th,、uh, which is uh, uh, very, very unpopular. <laughs>、um, uh, a lot of Japanese people or people in Japan don't like it happening as a state funeral. So there has been a lot of protests and a lot of mass opposition to this, this funeral. And it has been nearly almost three months. Uh, since uh, his assassination、uh, in July, and I thought it would be good to sort of reflect on and discuss the significance of this particular moment, but also everything, like review everything that has been happening. And、uh, to do that, today we have very special guests Hai、uh, san and Alisa from the program Imperialism. And they are former members of、uh, Unification Church. You all probably all know that、uh, you know, Abe had a really close ties to this, this organization, a、uh, very reactionary、uh, cult. And I found out about them、uh, through an episode of Faith in Capital. I encourage you all to check out the podcast and、uh, this particular episode. Uh, Ex Mooney anti imperialism, and、uh, even though I am not a Christian、uh, or religious, I found it very informative and、uh, interesting. And、uh, I learned so much from listening to this episode.、Um, yeah, so I'm really、uh, glad to have them on this podcast against Japanism. So, yeah, I am really looking forward to this conversation.、Uh, so, yeah, to start off, can you introduce yourself, Haisan and Alisa? Um, as well as the sort of an overview of the history of your organization. Yeah, thanks for having us.、Uh, I'm Elisa Majoub, and. Yeah, I'm Heisan. And、uh, we're part of a collection of,、uh, or collective of anti imperialist、uh, ex Moonies、uh, who are sort of researching and deconstructing. Our experiences and learning more about the roles、uh, that the UC played in imperialist、uh, expansion and counterinsurgency throughout the world. Yeah. And Elisa and I have both been involved in like a community of ex second generation or like ex Moonies who are second generation. And we actually originally connected like 10 years ago.、Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But, and we recently, like,、uh, Elisa reached out to this blog that I was writing about, like, Mooney stuff back in the day. I was helped start that and was moderating that at the time. And we recently kind of like came back into each other's lives. We stumbled into each other and found another ex Mooney with like anti imperialist convictions. So we, we connected and we were going to read. Blood in My Eye by George Jackson together, just to kind of、uh, find some clarity on like fascism and think through our experience. And then we're like, let's do that with other people too. And that's kind of how originally、um, deprogramming imperialism started to like、uh, 
yeah, consolidate, I guess. Uh, we just had like a reading group. We, we At first we were just like, let's read this book. And then people kept wanting to read. So uh, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely been a joint effort. Uh, glad we're glad we're growing and we've got some pretty cool members. Yeah, we've definitely, it's been cool to find other people who are on the same wavelength and, or just like starting to unpack a lot of this stuff. I think especially yeah. with like the assassination, it brings out, a lot of history that we didn't know and or like a lot of us had no idea about and um it brings to like i don't know you kind of hear about like counterinsurgency stuff and the ways that the church uh is complicit in these things growing up just kind of like you stumble into a negative article or something but uh this kind of made it really real for people and and kind of confronted a lot of us who grew up in the church with I don't know, just like how, yeah, just the reality of the UC as a tool of fascism, as a tool of imperialism. But yeah. Yeah, yeah thank you for that. And uh, yeah, I think the church really sort of represents the a sort of a global aspect of this uh, particular historical event, assassination of former prime minister, uh, you know, which is often seen as very sort of like i mean just like anything else any news items or historical events that happen in japan is kind of seen in a very geographically narrow way you know it's just it's a sort of uniquely japanese phenomenon you know sort of like isolated incident and one of the reasons i wanted to have you all on is i sort of provide a sort of global perspective and how uh you know this podcast is sort of critiquing Japanese-ness, uh, discourse of Japanese-ness and, you know, Japanese identity and how that's actually founded on uh, imperialist plunder and exploitation, you know, sort of uh, Japan uh, still being an imperialist country in a, like, Leninist sense, like, not imperialism as in sort of, like, wartime military expansionism or the empire system, but actual, like, economic system uh of imperialism as theorized by uh, lenin and yeah i think just yeah this this church as an organization is really an epitome of that uh but i just want to sort of provide a brief a review of what has transpired since july but feel free to jump in anytime uh if you want to add anything so the assassination happened on july 8th 2022 uh, Abe was assassinated during a political rally in Nara uh, in the Kansai region of Japan, uh, southwest. Uh, it happened two days before an upper house election on July 10th. And the assassin was immediately arrested and identified as 41-year-old Yamagami Tetsuya. And there were many speculations about his motives uh, before his identity, you know, before the details of his uh, identity and motives were uh, publicized. And the online far right, uh, Neto Yoku, uh, were spreading uh, racist rumors that assassin was Zainichi Korean and, you know, someone who assassinate a Japanese political leader cannot possibly be Japanese in their view. They have to be like foreign. Um, and yeah, and some well-intended leftists uh, condemned the assassin because of this. Uh, 
they thought that uh, it could provoke the far right to inflict more hate crimes and racist violence against Zionist Koreans. And, you know, obviously these reactionaries can be dangerous. And the fact that uh, there were many instances of anti-Korean hate crimes prior to the assassination shouldn't be taken lightly. But I think this sentiment uh, overestimates what these online trolls uh, can and, and are willing to do and underestimates the agency of the oppressed to use violence against the oppressors. Even if the rumor is true and the assassin uh, turned out to be a Zionist Korean, uh, he didn't. But more importantly, uh, regardless of the shooter's identity, Abe really deserved what he got. Uh, he apologized. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, yeah, he, he was awful. Yeah. He apologized for and defended some of the worst atrocities in modern human history, uh, such as the Nanjing massacre and systematic mass sexual slavery of colonized women uh, committed by Japanese imperialism during World War II. And his neoliberal economic policies in contemporary period. Uh, which he branded himself as Abenomics. Uh, Abenomics. Um, he invented it himself and he used it to sort of PR, uh, but it's, it's really uh, neoliberalism, right? And yeah. uh, these policies uh, forced many young working class men and uh, women like Yamagami into poverty and permanent precarity. And deprived the poor elderly folks of social security. And the Liberal Democratic Party, uh, which was founded by Abe's grandfather, Kishinobusuke, and, you know, with the support from the CIA, uh, in the 50s, uh, the party leadership with Abe in charge, they consistently attacked the democratic rights of women and LGBTQ plus people as well as the rights of migrants and refugees who have long been treated as subhumans by the Japanese state and the source of disposable cheap labor by the Japanese bourgeoisie. And not to mention, on the international front, Abe continued to represent Japan as part of the Western imperialist bloc uh, led by the United States, as well as an imperialist power of its own which exports way more capital than imports it uh, through direct foreign investment and aid, or ODA, uh, Official Development Assistance, as well as remilitarization through his, uh, his party's long-term project to revise the pacifist Article 9 of the Japanese Constitution and legalizing the concept of, quote-unquote, collective self-defense, uh, which obliges Japan to provide military assistance to its allies whenever they ask them to. Uh, not only the United States, but other imperialist and sub-imperialist countries like Australia and India. And under Abe's leadership, uh, Japan's eight developing countries in the global south became increasingly militarized as it assisted the police and military of reactionary regimes like the Philippine state and Indonesian state in the name of international development. He also developed closer political and economic ties 
with the Zionist state of Israel while paying lip service to the two-state solution in Palestine. Overall, his aim in the international arena was always to assist and defend the interest of the U.S.-led Western imperialism in Asia and beyond, which has caused the suffering, exploitation, and displacement of the untold millions of workers, peasants, and oppressed peoples worldwide, especially in colonized and semi-colonized countries of the global south. So when someone like Abe dies, regardless of the cause of their death, our response as progressives and revolutionaries shouldn't be to mourn or defend their legacies, but to celebrate their deaths and the fact that they're no longer alive. And of course, this isn't to say that the death of individual reactionaries and tyrants are going to solve the problems of capitalism and imperialism, or that individual acts of terrorism is a substitute for actual revolutionary mass movements led by the proletariat and oppressed peoples. But to reiterate, to defend and beautify their legacies just because they died, and much less to condemn the killer for using violence instead of electoral means is an act of historical revisionism itself. I'm going to say it again. Abe had it coming, both <laughs> as a human being and politician of some of the richest capitalist nations of the world. And, you know, this is exactly what uh, liberals and reactionaries did in response to assassination. Uh, sympathetic obituaries poured in mm. from politicians and pundits from around the world, praising Abe as a great statesman and champion of democracy or even feminist, right? Harry Clinton tweeted, you know, he was he did a grateful woman, uh, which is a, a lot of crap. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, he was anything but feminist he was he apologized for sexual slavery and even his uh, you know his he had this companion with uh abenomixu. he also coined the term umanomixu, like for sort of like kind of like a liberal bourgeois feminist program to provide create jobs for women but all the jobs that he created most of the jobs he created was like really precarious you know like really low paid low paying job so yeah it wasn't, you know, it was more of a ideological PR campaign than anything else. Um, yeah. Definitely yeah. not a feminist in any way, shape, form of the word. Yeah, so it's really, um, yeah, there were a lot of um, uh, obituaries and tributes that are completely erased the hideous and horrible legacies of, of this guy, this this politician. And before the details of the shooter's identity even came out, uh, liberals, uh, both in and out of Japan, uh, mostly on social media, but also in, in real life, including the revisionists from the Japanese Communist Party, jumped to conclusion by condemning violence, characterizing the assassination as an attack on democracy, uh, comparing it to the political assassinations of uh, high profile politicians and business people in the 1920s and 1930s by rogue fascist elements in the military. Uh, some even evoked the 60s and 70s uh, new left, quote unquote, extremism 
basically punching right and left to promote pacifism and discredit political violence of all forms. Um, however, in the days following the assassination, the details of the shooter's identity gradually came out. Uh, first, we learned that uh, the shooter, 41-year-old uh, Yamagami Tetsuya, was formerly a member of the Maritime Self-Defense Forces. And this helped me sort of speculate, oh, maybe he's like a right-wing reactionary. Uh, but it also turned out that he is a temp worker uh, working as a forklift operator. Um, in short, Yamagami uh, was revealed to be a member of the working class. Then there was a revelation that, or actually it wasn't immediately revealed, uh, the Japanese media uh, started reporting that uh, Yamagami held a grudge against Abe's affiliation with a quote-unquote a certain religious organization. I think there was a, a media ban uh, on the organization's identity and um, mm -hmm. because supposedly they wanted to protect uh, so this organization from the backlash, I suppose. Um, until uh, one media outlet broke the ban. Uh, I forgot which outlet. I think it was not Japanese outlet. Maybe it was non-Japanese media outlet. Uh, I can't remember. Uh, but they reported that it was a unification church, a far-right Christian cult. Uh, with pro-imperialist and anti-communist tendencies. Uh, although people who were familiar with the Japanese far right already knew or had a good sense that it was the, the UC, um, it was also revealed that Yamagami himself and members of his family were former members of the church. And the, the family went through uh, very difficult times. Uh, Tetsuya's father uh, committed suicide in 1984, uh, when he was three years old, and his mother uh, donated the family savings of a hundred million yen. Uh, I think it's about a million dollar in the U.S. Uh, to the church and had to file for bankruptcy in 2002. And Tetsuya himself attempted to commit suicide in 2005, uh, but survived. Uh, but his elder brother committed suicide in 2015. So this revelation really changed the narrative and so led to the public scrutiny of the UC's involvement in Japanese politics in the Liberal Democratic Party in particular. Um, I just want to pause here for a bit and sort of ask you like uh, how you felt when this news broke and you know, that the UC was involved in it? Well, uh, it was weird because when I heard certain religious organization, my mind automatically went to the UC. And having that confirmed shortly thereafter was just weird. And it brought up a lot of sort of like trauma that had been sort of buried for a while. Uh, I think, I mean, Heisung, I think a lot of us felt that way. Um, it's just sort of like, you know, unearthing a dead body in a way um yeah it was it was definitely sort of a trip and but it, at the same time it's you know not surprising per se uh given everything that the moonies have been involved in and all of the atrocities and horrors that they've committed and perpetrated upon people um this is just kind of what happens when people are subject to that level of abuse yeah yeah i would say a lot of 
second generation X Moody's like understood why this happened immediately and like especially Japanese members but it was shocking well definitely still shocking but also at the same time kind of felt inevitable in a way something like this felt inevitable uh considering the suffering that members have endured and especially members um well jap yeah japanese members especially um and yeah i don't know there was a lot of people who who identify with yamagami in some sense um like many expressed something along the lines of like i understand why he did this even though his actions were like unforgivable or inexcusable. Um, so there's definitely some of that sentiment. And, and there are others who understand why he did it, but don't necessarily see his actions as heinous, but actually fair. And that's, I mean, of course, like you said, like he, he got what he deserved. And uh, I guess for people who have I don't know, as people who see the need for coordinated and organized action, we don't necessarily, I don't necessarily see this as like, the, of course, the most effective way to deal with uh, imperialism or whatever. But mm-hmm. at the same time, it's, it is one less imperialist oppressor. Yeah, like definitely not going to cry about it. It's, uh, yeah. At the end of the day, it's probably something to be like, oh, I'll drink to that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And uh, one of the discourses that were kind of like being circulated in response to this revelation is that, um, you know, basically, yeah, the UC is terrible, but they're just like any other religious organizations, right? Like it, um, I mean, there's some truth to that. Like there are other like um, reactionary religious organizations that are quite influential in Japan, like the Nippon Kaigi, Japan Conference. They were like the far-right Shintoist uh, organization and is also uh, uh, Kometo, the party that's in coalition with the LDP, their uh, right-wing Buddhist organization, uh, Soka Gakkai, which is also very influential. And, you know, these groups have more like of a sort of aura of legitimacy, like they more, you know, operate legally as a political parties um, or so like lobbying organization. Uh, and, you know, that kind of UC is seen as more sort of like centric, kind of more weird cult. But I'd also say that they're not just like any other organizations, like their, their operation, they're, you know, they're global and they're very closely tied to the, the U.S. imperialism, right? So, yeah. and, the, you know, not to mention the history of their ties to the Abe dynasty, right? His mm-hmm. grandfather, like three generations, basically. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, do you uh, do you want to tell us more about that? Yeah, I mean, I I think that I don't know uh, Yamagami's politics necessarily. I think from his like internet presence, it kind of seemed eclectic or a somewhere between eclectic, apolitical, maybe leaning right. I don't know, but uh, so it doesn't seem like he was explicitly a leftist or anti imperialist. But he did understand the vital role that Shinzo Abe's grandfather played in protecting and supporting the early unification church in Japan. And like, also, like you said, like how it's been three generations of that supporting the unification church. And of course, um, using the LDP or using the LDP using unification church for political support and campaigning free labor. I don't know. Uh, Elisa, do you have more to say about that sort of thing? So, yeah, I mean, 
just yes, basically. So since the beginning of the LDP, uh, basically unification church stuff was there. And I mean, even to this day, like obviously there are a bunch of politicians, right, who have these ties, who've been getting donations, who, like Hazing was saying, use free labor. A lot of them have secretaries that are UC members who maybe either, you know, like work for free or are paid a little amount of money and sometimes are, you know, uh, coming across some sort of sensitive information and stuff. Um, but yeah, it goes it goes back very, very far uh, back to sort of, you know, like those those days, the early days of the church, um, and brings in a, a whole bunch of other fascists like Sasakawa and Kodama. Um, just, yeah, it's a whole, it's a whole tangle. Yeah. It's, it's hard to start talking about it. Cause it's like, we're going to start. Where do you things. begin? Yeah. yeah it's, <laughs> it's, it's kind of difficult to untangle, but yeah, I would, uh, like from, from the early 60s, yeah, Kishi formed a relationship with the Unification Church. And uh, the Unification Church, of course, came to Japan in the late 50s, and they sent a missionary. Um, uh, he, like, smuggled into Japan, actually, was smuggled illegally into Japan. Um, and immediately he, you know, started dealing with legal problems because of that. And he, Sasakawa who I don't really, yeah, there's, there's a lot to say about Sasakawa uh, as well. The self-proclaimed world's richest fascist. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, you the, know, the guy is up to some shit. Yeah. And so he uh, apparently uh, interceded on behalf of this UC missionary uh, and quickly kind of formed a relationship with this missionary and supported his efforts in building a church. And they really struggled with getting numbers in the early years, but uh, eventually they were able to form a relationship with an ultra-nationalist uh, Nichiren sect uh, that, and 50 of its like kind of young leaders ended up joining the Unification Church. Um, they had like a cooperative relationship with this organization and they were kind of doing some like uh, ideological training of their members and offering workshops and stuff. But eventually uh, the second in command from this sect uh, ended up joining the Unification Church. And this guy, um, Osami Kuboki, I think. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he, he ended up, he was actually a lieutenant in the Yakuza as well. Uh, so anyway, he, he, this guy ends up joining the church, brings in 50 people, and it kind of uh, brings some legitimacy to the Unification Church. And they start to form more connections with like other established, really wealthy war criminals, um, mm -hmm. including uh, Kishi uh, and Kodama. But yeah, again, there's, there's so much to say when we, when we go into that. I don't know how much you want me to, yeah. Yeah, so this whole like religious syncretism that I was talking to earlier, right? Like, because Abe was a supporter of both uh, Unification Church and Nippon Kaiye. Mm -hmm. Like, he considered himself a, you know, militant right-wing Shintoist, but also supporter of this, like, Christian sect, right? Um, mm -hmm. And also, like, their relationship with the Nichi uh, Nichiren uh, sect or the Buddhism. It's like, it just doesn't really matter to them. Yeah, but, you as know, long as like, there's organized these, crime. Yeah, organized I mean, crime or just like a, yeah, 
as long as it served the class agenda, right? Like, yeah, yeah, it doesn't doesn't really matter to them. Yeah, nope. I mean, even before the unification church was a thing, there was the moral rearmament, yeah,、uh, movement, I guess, which is this like, uh, so it's vaguely religious, vaguely spiritual kind of, uh. It's but it's it's been it was used as a political tool as a tool、yeah. of like British intelligence and and CIA、um, and like and they and a lot of like the architecture the like ideological architecture of that organization like kind of was inherited in a lot of ways by the Unification、yeah. Church but we know like both Kishi. Uh, was like you know a supporter of moral rearmament as well, and so was Kim Jong Pil, who would found the KCIA and also like golfed with Moon, good friends with Moon, met、yeah. with、uh, early Unification Church members in the U.S.、Uh, and he told them, "Don't worry, we're going to support you from the inside." Like I'm oh yeah, right before that, inside, right、um, before that, he met with some intelligence guys in D.C. as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and, but there's there's a lot to all of that. But all that to say is、yeah. like、uh, that kind of syncretism or just using whatever you know organization could be could help you out. I mean, yeah, it, that's that's what they do. So yeah, yeah, they were sort of like the they were like proto moonies in my opinion. Like、uh, I feel like a lot of their sort of like organizational ties are connect like the way that they organize specifically, and then as well as like. The sort of like networks of people were the same. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and yeah, yeah. So there's there's a lot to say about that, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, but <laughs> fascism is by definition syncretic, right? Like it's kind of they basically、mm-hmm. take, it's、yeah. very eclectic.、Uh, take、yeah. uh, you know whatever element, whatever、uh, works, whatever works. Well, even some like、yeah. leftist, you know, ideologies、yeah. like socialism and communism, and you know, sort of try to recruit from the left left wing spaces. Yeah, happening a lot these days.、Um, yeah, definitely. I think I think one thing too to say about that is like I think this like the Unification Church's theology is like definitely and it has a strong like biblical like grounding I guess for its、uh, mythology or whatever its cosmology. But at the same time, like it, it is a mixture of like Taoist shamanism and like kind of like different you know. Uh, traditional or folk traditions that come from Korea, and and so it's yeah. And at the time, like in the interwar kind of period in Korea between Korean War and World War II and occupation, the that kind of、uh, there was of course like there was there was like a huge movement of like syncretistic kind of religions that were very similar. So it does make sense in a way.、Um, I don't know. Like, I think what the KCIA or the Korean government had in mind when, in like, when they're like, okay, we're gonna start using the Unification Church as a tool, which like is pretty documented as a thing. Yeah. Uh, uh, but I, I think that's kind of something they like recognize is like these. There's so many movements like this that are growing and like that are mobilizing people and mobilizing like <laughs> poor and oppressed people. Um, who could be thinking about imperialism being bad? <laughs> But、um, yeah, I, so I think that they, the yeah, I don't know that they 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 use they tried to use that as like or they they kind of chose the Unification Church as a tool for that reason. But at the same time,
uh, I think with the rise of like evangelical Christianity in Korea, like uh, it kind of uh, prevented it just they weren't able to draw in as many numbers from Korea as they had probably hoped and as the KCA, KCIA had probably hoped. Um, but of course, like they had, you know, members at that point, thousands in Japan and, and hundreds in the U.S. So they had other places. But yeah, uh, yeah anyway, all this. Yeah. Yeah, I'm wondering if you can tell us more about their roots in Korea, right? Like, uh, I believe the, their name, Unification, uh, refers to the unification of Korean Peninsula. Um, the founder, Moon, like he was sort of, you know, he has sort of this like <laughs> enlightenment, uh, I believe when he was tortured. Like he, he's a former communist, right? He was a... Uh, supposedly. Supposedly, yeah. yeah. Supposedly, and, <laughs> And obviously, their cost tie with the, the U.S. Yeah. imperialism. Uh, it's really, uh, you know, and this podcast is about critiquing Japanese imperialism, past and present. And, um, uh, you know, I also sort of learned a lot from other uh, content creators and organizations like uh, Nodato and um, Andy from this, um, uh, oh, shit. I, I forgot there's a they run an uh, Instagram account. The name, I kind of blacked out on the name. It's, uh, I'll, I'll add it in the show note. Um, I also collaborated with Jay from the Peace Report. The, I guessed it on one of his streams and we talked about sort of the legacy of Japanese imperialism, Korea. But, you know, I'm, I'm obviously very interested in this history. So, yeah, I'm wondering if you can tell us about, you know, how did this organization come about in Korea and uh, how it influenced their ideology or theology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah, yeah okay. it was uh, pretty much born out of the Korean War environment. Um, so Moon is originally from what is now North Korea. Um, obviously, he sided with you know the imperialists rather than the North, uh, but he so. The unification does actually, yeah, it does refer to the unification of the Korean Peninsula, which is pretty integral to the church doctrines and is basically seen as like one of the end goals uh, of God's providence, basically. Um, But yeah, it was born out of sort of like these, the sort of like general Protestant movements at the time Moon claimed to have as a teen uh, had a, uh, a, a revelation where God spoke to him. And basically told him, you know, to start a movement, to start a church, Um, whether, you know, like whether or not that actually happened to him, who knows, because I mean, people who knew him at the time were like, the guy wasn't really religious, right? Um, But so, I mean, basically, since day one, it seems to have been pretty much sort of centered toward this sort of like anti-communist sort of movement. Um, and then there's like another facet of the church that it actually started out as like a sex cult under a practice called, I think, Picarum. Um, So basically Moon claimed that he could uh, cleanse basically the lineage of Satan from a person's body and blood by having sex with them and connecting them to God. So through this, he definitely raped a lot of women Um yeah, just off the bat, just horrible stuff, pretty much. Um, and honestly, ties in perfectly to the dynamics of control and repression that the church continues to this day, even though it might be 
sort of like on a different, you know, now it's like, don't have sex. But then it was like, he had sex with all the ladies. Um, yeah. Hey song. Do you want to add to that? Yeah. Yeah. I, I would just say like, like you're saying, yeah, moon, moon, it, 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 it could, he probably was at some point at least connected to communists. His, his best friends and his roommates when he was in school in Japan were communists. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't have like, I guess, reason to, I don't know. He claims he was a part of the independence movement. I don't know what that means or looks like, but he yeah. did get questioned by the police in Korea, uh, the Japanese police in Korea when he returned from school, um, probably because of his connection to his roommates, but he was very quickly let go. So I, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. honestly but, makes me wonder if he was already sort of doing that sort of spy stuff in that time period, but it's it's hard to like be able to tell. if he was tell. a collaborator. Yeah, was, yeah, yeah, because I mean, so. I know that when he was arrested in North Korea, it was both for like sex crimes and supposedly being a spy for the South. So that was pretty early on. Uh, and I remember reading in one book that there was a woman in prison with him who suspected that he was an American spy at the time. And, you know, I don't like, of course, we don't really know the veracity of any of that yet because, Uh, It's been very obscured and there are not as many details out there that, you know, are available that we have found just because of the nature of the, the, what it was, which is basically, you know, like a, a a psychological and counter-revolutionary operation. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I will say within like a few years. So the UC was like officially founded in 1954. Like, I guess the paperwork was done then Uh, like moon had kind of, several stints of trying to start his thing, his church, his religion, and had followers, and then some controversy would blow up, and he, you know, things would happen. But in 1954, I guess he had a consistent, like, he had enough disciples and whatever, and he established an organization. And within a few years, we know that at least, like, four military um, members became, or joined the church, and all of those that had were either in the KCIA or had a strong cooperative relationship with the KCIA, yeah. um, including Bohi Pak, uh, who is kind of like the, who's often talked about as the ideological architect of the UC and for a long time was like Moon's right-hand man and was often kind of seen as like his co-leader too. And yeah. he was an interpreter during the Korean War uh, so he worked with the U.S. military and the Korean military and was like kind of in between them, a liaison. And he was also an interpreter for Moon when Moon would give speeches, especially from like the 70s and, and 80s. Um, and so but he was often revising Moon's words too when Moon would speak and often to like make it more coherent, just like rhetorically, because Moon was all over the place, but also (laughs) coherent, like ideologically. So he had a lot to do with how Moonies think, I guess. And when he came to the US in the 60s, he, Pac, Bohi Pak, he had confided in like a friend of his, Robert Rowland, that his job was to like do like normal routine diplomatic stuff. Um, but was also to be a liaison between the Republic of Korea's intelligence and American uh, intelligence agencies. Um, and though he said it just had to mostly deal with like secret codes, monitoring radio transmissions. Um, but yeah, so the, the KCIA, like, of course, like has its roots too in the Korean Counterintelligence Corps, which was 
propped up during the Korean War by the U.S. military and intelligence. Um, And as the Korean War was like winding down and following the Korean War, Pak went to Fort Benning in Georgia, um, which is a U.S. Army post uh, that's known for like, that's where the School of the Americas is, you know, that's where that training stuff is. So, um, yeah, so, and of course, like the founder of the KCAA that we mentioned, Kim Jong-pil, he spoke to UC members and stuff and he and it's been said that like he specifically kind of ruled that the uh, or determined that the UC would be uh, a good tool for the government. And he told the church members in San Francisco that like, yeah, he said that he sympathized with Moon's goals and he promised to like help them with political support from inside the government. And that whole trip to uh, that Kim Jong-pil took to the US in 1962 was all his meetings were arranged by Bohi Pak. So, yeah, I don't know. In, in 1963, like, there was a CIA report that kind of, like, it was a little inflammatory where it said, like, the UC was organized by the KCIA as a political tool, which, in, in 1962, which doesn't quite make sense because the church was founded in 54. Um, yeah. But it, I guess it probably, it's likely that in some way the UC was kind of reorganized uh, in, like, 1962 in order to, like, more efficiently be used as a tool for this kind of post-coup new Korean government that came in in 61. Um, So there was likely some kind of agreement, like a literal agreement between Moon and Kim Jong-pil, though this was like not a cut and dry kind of arrangement. Uh, It like, yeah, Kim's own power and influence in the Korean government, like definitely would fluctuate, would wax and wane, uh, depending on like factional struggles. And and as Moon also like began developing businesses and political ties abroad, and especially like in Japan, they, he was able to like have some more independence from the Korean government and the KCIA. And there were even times where the Korean government retaliated against the UC, though never really harshly, just like around the time of like uh, the Korea Gate stuff, uh, which is a whole thing, but and a lot of that could be just like saving face shit too. Honestly, you know, like yeah. you gotta distance yourself from whatever's happened because you know, there's yeah, there have been a lot of sort of like makeovers of the UC over the years. They changed their name several times. They sort of like yeah, there've been a couple periods I think where they sort of like reorganized things in a different way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All, all, yeah. So. The, uh, there was like only one time that I can think of where the Korean government retaliated against the UC and it was in the seventies, probably 74. And all they did was like find some factories in UC businesses. And yeah. it was in retaliation for like bad media, bad press in, in the US <laughs> about the church and how moon is like brainwashing young people, that sort of thing. And, and Korea gave stuff, but yeah. So yep. I want to move on to, uh, the UC's activities in other places and uh, in service of uh, US-led Western imperialism. Can you tell us about um, yeah, their activities primarily in the global south and against the uh, you know, revolutionary movements and uh, what this history sort of tells us about uh, or sort of uh, makes us reevaluate so to speak, uh, Yamagami's action in a sort of broader context of the UC's role in counterinsurgency. 
Yeah. So I guess before we go into this sort of like expansive list that crosses the whole globe of uh, all of the different ways that they have provided support and counterintelligence and counterinsurgency stuff, uh, I guess it's just important to say that they had a very multi-pronged approach and there is not basically like a, a, an inch of the globe that they didn't affect. So, hey, Sung, do you want to start off by talking about sort of the counterinsurgency stuff in the Philippines? Uh, yeah, I mean, so there's a, there's a lot, like you said, um, but in the in the Philippines, there's been like a pretty there's been a lot of history, especially like post uh, Marcos being deposed, though it, it has been said that like the UC had some kind of connections with Marcos, probably through like anti-communist sort of organ organizing, maybe the, the WACL sort of stuff. But um, after Marcos was deposed, the Unification Church like immediately began organizing or like yeah they, they did a number of things but they immediately started organizing these conferences in the philippines that would bring together like um military and intelligence officers from the u.s and from uh the philippines and to like figure out counterinsurgency strategies um bringing in guys that like like singlob and just a lot of guys that if you read about counterinsurgency they're like and the history of it and especially the most vile stuff that's been done that a lot of these guys names keep coming back up yeah um, like ray klein Singal, oh God, and, yeah. yeah so uh all that to say is they they the uc helped develop these conferences and and from these conferences launched a number of anti-communist organizations uh including in in the philippines a chapter of causa but they also helped uh organize kind of vigilante groups to combat the New People's Army or and the Communist Party of the Philippines, um, which, you know, before Marcos was deposed was kind of like the vanguard of, of the struggle there against Marcos. But uh, there had been some kind of, uh, yeah, there had been a number of issues. And I think the CPP and the MPA kind of lost some support when they pushed the boycott election. And so there, there's a number of things there. But that being said, the, the UC helped organize these vigilante groups that were, uh, they kind of, a, a lot of them were doing like propaganda work. But then uh, we know that a lot of these groups too, most of them were doing, were literally murdering communists. Um, yeah. And one of those groups, uh, like Alsa Masa uh, in Mindanao, um, they were some of the most like, violent and they one of their their kind of spokesperson um would read the causa manifesto and causa is this anti-communist mooney front organization would read the manifesto on the radio and would you know use the talking points and this manifesto too like they trained the philippine military with this manifesto and and uh yeah, so, but, and he was a part of this Alsa Masa group, which is probably um, what the uh, Davao death squads, which I'm pretty sure exists today, but exactly, especially existed like uh, when uh, Duterte was mayor of that city um, and he used them to kill his political enemies. So they helped develop these things that still exist in some form <laughs> that are still actively killing uh, communist combatants. And, and even today, um, the Unification Church has a number of arms companies um, 
And it's really hard to figure out the history of them because they like kind of change the public history of them often as well. And they change their names a lot. Um, but Tongil Heavy Industries um, uh, is kind of what people usually think of uh, and has historically provided weapons to, oh, one second. Uh, sorry about that, uh, has historically provided weapons to the Korean military and uh, since even the 60s. Uh, but but now today there's a SNT motive, which is uh, owned by the Unification Church and kind of came out of these subsidiaries of Tungil Heavy Industries. Uh, but they supply weapons today for the Korean military, but also for the AFP, the Armed Forces of the Philippines and the Philippine National Police, uh, specifically like the unit that um, the super militarized unit that's, that was created in order to combat both Moro um, radicals and sorry, so many noises right now, both Moro radicals and, and communists or members of New People's Army. So that's just like one thing. But they uh, and also like today, even of course, Duterte is not in office anymore. It's now Marcos Jr. But when Duterte was in office, he he, he initiated this war on drugs, uh, which is still ongoing. And the Unification Church, or specifically the Universal Peace Federation, uh, which is another Mooney front, um, which a lot of, uh, you know, when people talk about these lawmakers in, in Japan who have connections to the church, a lot of times they spoke at a UPF event or a UPF conference. Uh, and we're paid by UPF, but the UPF has like the, this school in the Philippines. It was originally organized as like a seminary for Philippine members in the 80s, I think, or 90s. Um, one of the two. But it's now today um, being used for these like year-long workshops. So if you're um, caught smoking weed and the government, for whatever reason, determines you're not actually an addict, you're just a recreational user, like just every so often. So, um, so we won't, you know, like kill you or whatever, <laughs> do something absolutely terrible. We'll send you this uh, year-long Mooney workshop instead. So they literally get, they do like martial arts training, uh, the kind of the Unification Church has their own form of Taekwondo, but they also do like divine principle lectures and ideological training. And after this year-long workshop, a lot of these, these people are become, of course, Unification Church members, and they join CARP, which is like a student um, organization, the Unification Church uh, organized, which originally was organized to combat student movements in the 60s and 70s, uh, especially leftist student movement. Yeah. Uh, so they, a lot of these people become CARP members and are sent across the Philippines and even across like into Korea, Japan, all over the world. And uh, but they've also found that a lot of these they're promised like, you know, we can send you abroad and get you a good uh, job and they will work for like a unification church owned company or an organization or at a factory. But the the terms of which, you know, are not necessarily like the terms of which they agreed to are not necessarily uh the church isn't necessarily faithful to that. And a lot of times it's, they are just like traffic. Uh, yeah. And really, yeah. Like sometimes they even are like sent to live with a, a church leader and to just take care of their family and re help raise their kids and have their passport taken away. And so they're just like trapped. Um, so yeah, well there, there's all, again, a lot that's been done in the Philippines, uh, not just counterinsurgency, but 
uh, human rights violations that I think kind of are just reflective also of kind of how the world and how imperialism uh, interacts with the Philippines and what those dynamics, those kind of uh, semi-colonial dynamic, or it's not, yeah, semi-feudal uh, rather, semi-colonial dynamics, like what they look like. Uh, yeah. So there's a lot there. <laughs> yeah, a lot, a lot. Uh, so I guess elsewhere, uh, Latin America is a big area for Moody counterinsurgency stuff. Uh, the UC was involved in like, and their organizations like CAUSA uh, were involved in supporting the Contras during Iran-Contra with like material aid, uh, food aid, probably weapons, and they were probably doing some drug trafficking for them as well. Uh, I know they were uh, mentioned on one of like Oliver North's like memos of some sort, uh, as well as like a whole bunch of other sort of evidence around there. Uh, there's even in, I think the, oh gosh, I forget what that uh, hearing after Iran-Contra was, but they, they talk about uh, some sort of unnamed American religious movement that was helping. And I have, you know, definitely uh, doing like, drug trafficking stuff. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if that was the Moonies because they certainly seem to have, you know, been doing that sort of stuff around that time. Um, uh, like including, you know, helping overthrow the Bolivian government during the cocaine coup and working directly with the Nazi Klaus Barbie to do so. Um, I guess back on the, sorry, I'm sort of out of order here, but back on the Iran Contra train, like there was a uh, so for the Contras, there was like sort of their equivalent of like the uh, the Trump hats, the MAGA hats was like this like shirt that Kausa would sell or give out to people. Um, so they were like literally like making the aesthetic for that as well. And was like, you know, surprise, like supporting them uh, and giving them arms and money and all of this other stuff. Um, so they were definitely like one of the back channels that especially after sort of Iran Tantra stuff started, started coming out. Like I think they were definitely used for that prior to that, but when Congress stopped supporting the Contras, they were definitely used as sort of like a, a back way into that. Um, and this sort of ties back into sort of the world anti-communist league sort of stuff. Um, an organization that uh, the Moonies were heavily involved with, uh, I believe Moon helps found it, uh, the Asian People's Anti-Communist League, which is what World Anti-Communist League developed out of. Uh, but he helped found that with a whole bunch of other fascists, including like Chiang Kai-shek. Um, and over the years, the World Anti-Communist League has pretty much fucked up all globe, all corners of the globe. Um, there are Nazis in that organization. They have ties to the anti-Bolshevik bloc of nations, uh, lots of Ustasi members, just generally like fascist central. And they would have these big world conferences around the globe uh, and meet up and just do fashy shit. And uh, fun death squads. Yeah, that's that's it. That's there. There are very few death squads, I'd say, in the last maybe seventy five years that don't have some sort of connection to the Moonies. I, I would I would go that far as to say that. Um, then in the United States, so we had CARP uh, on the college campuses. They did a lot of recruiting through um, campuses to get members because, you know, kids who are sort of in between uh, in sort of that liminal period of their life where things are changing, they're getting out there, they're going to see the world, they're idealistic, they want to help change things, uh, sort of rerouting them from sort of the more like leftist and communist or anarchist perspectives into this overtly well not it's not overtly fascist for a lot of them they sort of bring them in and we're like oh you know we're helping the world we're helping bring about peace and stuff so they lie in a lot of ways and a lot of the people involved and 
don't know until later on or ever really what they're getting into. Um, the Moonies also in America collaborated with the FBI. They got lists of members that they used to help them start brawls at uh, protests and stuff, which they would set up as well. Uh, they did a lot of countering of leftist protests um, throughout the years. Um, a lot of fights happened. Um, let's see. They also own the Washington Times, uh, as well as a whole bunch of other media outlets throughout the world. Um, so they played like pretty significant, you know, propaganda uh, role as well, um, specifically here in America, but, you know, obviously everywhere else, um, but with their involvement in things like uh, Radio Free Asia and stuff like that, um, just uh, they have like a very vast propaganda empire as well. Um, let's see. Let's see what other notes I've got here. Uh, may I jump in here a bit? Yeah. Um, Heisen mentioned uh, in the chat, and I was actually thinking about it as well. Um, uh, in your interview with Faith and Capital, you mentioned that they were also in Nepal, like yeah. Uh, yeah. working with the, the Maoist government yeah. there, and which is kind of surprising to me. Can you tell us about that a bit? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So Nepal specifically, there's there's a lot more that needs to be done, like research-wise, on what the UC's role has been in supporting the counter-revolution. But like for over a decade, the well, since 2005, though there was a little bit of time during some insurgency stuff that the church wasn't as present, but from 2005, the, the UC has poured millions into, into Nepal. And especially in the past like decade, it's start been starting a lot of businesses and churches, have developed a political party, have gotten church members into assembly, um, including a church leader who had become the minister for the Ministry of um, Peace and Re Reconstruction of the Government of Nepal. So playing a vital role in figuring and, and you know, restructuring uh, the Nepalese government. And so, the, the, and we know that the, this minister and UPF have explicitly worked with Maoist militants and, you know, trying to create dialogue and harmony between the Ma Maoists and, and the other parties and institutions and they even like they developed so much of a relationship with uh, these Maoists that that they even had members and officials of uh, the Maoist party attend 100 day workshops uh, about the divine principle or the unification church's theology um, in the Philippines. So they, they went out to the Philippines to receive that training. But um, yeah, and so there there is a lot there The uh, to be honest, there's there's so much more that needs to be done research-wise, but we know like that there has been increasing like um, the diplomatic relations between Korea and Nepal, and a lot of these we can trace it back to what UPF is is doing there and um, them trying to actively build these uh, connections and relationships and and yeah. Uh, with the with the Maoists specifically, it's they've kind of started, you know, with communists as we know, like Moon Sun Myung Moon met with Kim Il Sung, uh, and it was this big thing, you know, in the DPRK, and he also met with Gorbachev. So yeah. he kind of took this different, like, just trying to take a different stance towards communists um, before you know the USSR fell, uh, of like you know, we're brothers and we can find another way. And, and, and in truth, like what Moon will say, he's like, I'm not into like 
you know, American democracy, and I'm not into like communism, like there's another third way. And so he, he would frame it as like, he's kind of like, uh, his ideology was headwing thought, it's not left or right, it's like you're seeing above both sides, you know, and so that's kind of how the UPF has been kind of, that's kind of how they're trying to interact with communists as well in, in, in countries like, well, at least in Nepal. Um, but in, in the Philippines, they're more openly uh, anti-communist and more openly, um, yeah. So it's it's how they approach communists and counterinsurgency has looked very different, but um, it's they've definitely been played a huge role in kind of like liberalizing the Maoist movement in, in Nepal and kind of um, pushing counter-revolution after like, there was yeah. major wins in, in Nepal for, for Maoists there. Uh, yeah. Yeah, sort of like jumping off of that, sort of like trying to push like counter-revolutionary thought um, in the Soviet Union before it broke apart um, at, at the World Media Conference uh, there, I believe it was 91, it was either 90 or 91. Uh, Moon also met privately with Gorbachev, their, their photos, uh, uh, as well as like in the Soviet Union, they were using, again, college campuses to sort of push workshops as well as like uh, offer trips out of the country to young kids there uh, so that, you know, they could sort of like be like, oh, we'll give you this incentive to leave and or like indoctrinate you simultaneously. Um, so there was, you know, also a significant amount of stuff going on there with the Soviet Union and then with Russia after that fell apart. So, yeah. And I will say this, like, I guess what, what the Unification Church is often doing in Nepal is like pushing this kind of like, um, like this, I, you know, the whole like family values, God-centered families, like, yeah. uh, and like that kind of idea out. They're really pushing that idea out. And even though that in some ways those kind of, ideas of creating like it feels harmless when you first hear it like a god-centered family at, at least maybe i was raised in moody's maybe, <laughs> maybe, <I didn't. laughs> maybe it seems but like it's not necessarily um doesn't seem as ideologically violent but then when you when they're they're pushed uh, yeah but then when you think about it they're like oh they want to like establish theocracy like that yeah. mandates these kind of you know heteronormative families and whatever um and yeah so a big thing that they've been doing in nepal is like yes they are starting their own churches they're founding churches they have missionaries but they're also very much pushing like you know these maoists they've been so against religion there's been such a you know religion has suffered and that spirituality has suffered in nepal and you know, we we all need to go back to our roots and people need to like rediscover their religious kind of roots. And it's kind of, uh, yeah, a way to, to, I guess that's that's part of the ideological warfare that's going on. Uh, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's fascinating. And, uh, you know, like to the whole like, uh, oh, I'm not political, you know, I'm neither communist or uh, capitalist, whatever. that's like another talking point of fascism, right? It's sort of. Yeah, like, that third way kind of thing. Yeah. Definitely, um, he falls and, in that category. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also raises the question of uh, revisionism, right? Like, yeah, in Nepal and Soviet Union, and you know, they seem to have played a role in transition back into sort of restoration of uh, capitalism, and you know, the the ideology of class collaboration, basically, as opposed to class struggle, which is the, one of the 
foundational principles of uh, Marxism. Uh, you know, to me, revisionism means the abandonment of the class struggle and proletarian internationalism for class collaboration and uh, nationalism. So that's definitely, yeah, yeah that's a definitely fascinating um, episode for sure. It's all really great. I think thanks so much for providing that uh, international perspective and um yeah, and the Philippines as well. And, you know, Japanese imperialism, uh, both pre and post World War II, you know, obviously played a huge role uh, exploiting and oppressing. And, you know, in the case of the pre war, really brutalizing um, uh, many, many Filipino people. The, the Death March is a, one of the famous examples about, uh, uh, and of course, the comfort woman, uh, sexual slavery uh, in the Philippines. You know, a lot of the I think a lot of the um, campaigning and discourse around comfort women tends to focus on Korea, but there are also a lot of survivors in the Philippines as well. And um, Lira Filipina, they are are a member of Gabriela Alliance, um, but they're one of the national democratic organizations uh, campaigning for the survivors of the comfort women system. And uh, yeah, so it's a really sort of the, the history of Japanese imperialism is, you know, it's really, uh, I mean, they're still there. Like, the Philippines, like you said, is a, a semi-colonial ca- country. Um, and basically divided up amongst the various imperial po- imperialist powers, uh, including Japan, primarily U.S. and increasingly China as well. So, so whatever they do, whatever counterinsurgency and ideological campaigns they engage in, they... Uh, even the the one drugs it really helps imperialism right they yeah really smoothen out their 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 exp- exploitation and oppression of the, these oppressed nations yeah especially uh, since they're often involved themselves in the selling and propagation of the drug markets so yeah and uh yeah this is really a, what i wanted to highlight is that uh, you know this perspective is really uh missing from the reportage and, and the sort of mainstream analysis of the the unification charge in and Abe's assassination. So yeah, so that's a that's really important stuff. And uh I also want to talk about um uh you referred to earlier uh they rebranded uh, they changed their name, right? From uh, in 2015 uh they changed their name from the unification charge to the the Family Federation for World Peace or Family Federation. And this sort of, you know, this metaphor of family really pops up a lot in the, in the UC ideology. And, uh, you know, Moon uh, is seen as a sort of, like, I guess, a, the parent of all parents, I guess. Like, um, and so it's, I find it really interesting that um, they really fetishize this, this institution of family uh, which of course, under capitalism, is a sort of you know family, like Althusser said, family is an uh, ideological state apparatus to, for the reproduction yeah. of uh, capitalism. So it, it is a broader like systematic thing, but also like particularly to this organization's ideology, it seemed quite central. And um, at least you alluded earlier to the sort of um, one of some of the earlier activities of the UC as a sort of sex cult. 
Um, yeah. And also, like in the interview with Faith and Capital, you uh, discussed the ideology towards the gender and sexuality. I'm wondering if you can talk about that and how has this uh, sort of pro family agenda, uh, I suppose, influenced the their treatment of members, uh, specifically gender-oppressed members? Yeah. So, yeah, um, in, in the Unification Church, the sort of idea of the nuclear family is pretty integral to the ideology and to the texts. Uh, in their interpretation of the Bible, the fall was basically when uh, Eve had sex with Satan and then had sex with Adam and spread that sin. Uh, so off the bat, like immediately, it's very very misogynistic, uh, which is consistent throughout the whole church for basically the treatment of uh, women and other gender minorities. Um, there's a story of something called the purity knife uh, that basically uh, a lot of mothers tell their daughters. And it's basically like, if you're going to be sexually assaulted, you should kill yourself first so that you don't ruin your connection to God. Uh Women members are, you know, obviously generally like paid less by church businesses. Uh, there's the whole thing about like, you know, the marriage trafficking and the arranged marriages that'll happen. There's basically no sexual autonomy for members, but especially uh, women and a lot of hatred and vitriol uh, towards LGBTQ individuals. Uh, Moon referred to gay people as dogs. He was, uh, they all, he was horribly dung eating dogs, yeah, (laughs) specifically. Um, yeah, guy hated queer people. They also, like, around the world have supported a lot of organizations that, uh, do stuff like, uh, abstinence only education as well as, like, um, anti LGBTQ stuff. A lot of orgs, they have do that. Uh, and actually like if, if you're gay, they basically have conversion therapy at their, uh, church town, Chungkyung in Korea. So yeah, it's, it's altogether not great. They also have workshops there for like pregnant women. So they have their babies be pure or whatever. (laughs) And, uh, they send like bad kids or fallen kids to workshops too, meaning that they have had sex, um, because that could, you know, uh, (laughs) that could, in their opinion, well, first of all, you're going to hell. And second of all, uh, it doesn't, you know, support the family unit kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like Annalisa said, like the nuclear family, it's like integral to UC doctrine. And like there, in order to get to the highest form of heaven, you need to like be married. And not only that, like you need to create this kind of God-centered family that where everyone else is also like, you know, where your kids are getting married to another spouse with God's lineage and this and that. So, um, so like Elisa say, there's like no sexual autonomy. Right. But also yeah. like, there's so many, like, you know, we're, when we think of marriage and unification church, we're always told these horror stories, uh, like of people who have terrible marriages, um, and yet they like make it work and they're still together and that's just what it takes (laughs) like what it is and like I don't know and there's so many people like my mom I just like I know so many people who like talk about these other women and and they're like oh she's so holy she has a terrible husband you know she's such a good woman she has a horrible husband and just like that's such a common sentiment and um like and we like yeah I don't know and and I know in the earlier early 2000s or mid 2000s, wherever, there was um, a bunch of 
Christian churches in Japan and organizations that came together to, to put out a statement on like these 6,500 Japanese women that were missing after receiving an arranged marriage from the Unification Church and being blessed or being married in the Unification Church. And the Unification Church, you know, in the 90s and 2000s was kind of treating the, the blessing ceremony, the marriage matching stuff as a kind of mail order bride thing for mm. for Koreans and uh, who were not even church members, they would just put ads in the newspaper. And so for, you know, a lot of like, uh, especially like men who were um, living in rural areas, farmers where they couldn't meet people, um, they would, you know, do the, they would sign up for a blessing or whatever, and they would get like a Japanese wife or a Filipino wife. And yeah, so that, so there's all these people who are literally missing have not had contact with their family after this. And, and like, we know with the Philippines, I know we, it's, we can't really necessarily trust what the Philippine government is saying, but they, they did do like research into like these, you know, thousands of Filipinas who got married into the unification church. And um, they, and they like, they did trace where they would go after and like, there, a lot of them did go to these, you know, husbands, abusive husbands. A lot of times, a lot of times were abusive, uh, actually. And uh, yeah, and they're, yeah, that's a whole thing in itself. A lot of them were married to terrible people. Uh, but also, a lot of them were put, like, immediately brought into a church factory. And, uh, and that was kind of why they were really brought there. Or they were like, some of them were directly brought into brothels and into the sex trade. So, yeah, that I, I I'm just saying that to shed more light on what that what that looks like. Yeah, um, yeah, general subservience of women uh, across the board. You're supposed to basically in their thing. It's like uh, so it's God, and then it's like true parents, and then it's the husband, then the wife, then the kids are supposed to have an extreme amount of quote unquote filial piety. Um, and basically do whatever. So it sort of like follows that chain of command. Uh, another thing I would bring up is, oh shoot, my brain just, brain just lost it. Um, what about gay stuff? Let's talk about gay stuff for a moment. That was not what it was, but it is something uh, else. But yeah, let's talk yeah. about the gay stuff for a moment. Yeah, I mean, I would, I'll, all I was going to say is just like, I, I know that the, the UC has historically like, I don't know, at least like in UPF internationally, they do like these family sort of workshops, marriage workshops and that sort of thing. Mm. But not not just that, but like they do these workshops, not just like normal people too. They do them for like politicians and stuff. But they also do like, I, I don't know, they the UPF leader in Kenya for one was like put out a lot of statements about gay marriage and how it needs to, you know, be made illegal and here and all over the world. And, uh, and he's saying this during a time when, you know, the, the kill the gays bill was kind of being passed. Mm -hmm. So uh, in Kenya, so he was definitely like adding to that. And there's a lot of players in pushing the kill the, the gays bill that was happening like, you know, 10 or less than 10 years ago. Uh, especially like evangelicals from the U.S. and stuff, but but the, the UPF also like definitely uh, tried to organize around that as well. But we 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 also know that like 
they've done, they've played a role in like organizing anti-gay marriage rallies. They were one of the yeah. major organizers of a 2013 rally of 300,000 people in Taipei um, to support, you know, traditional two-parent families. Um, and we also know that like, there's a former Unification Church member named Richard Cohen, who was, uh, we, I say former, like, uh, hesitantly because he still works for the church, still has a lot of connections with the church, uh, not necessarily works directly with the church, but the church will like uh, hire him on for a workshop or ask him to be a speaker and often recommends his books and stuff. But he does these like, a, you know, ex-gay therapy sort of reparative therapy thing. And right before um, Texas was going to have like a vote uh, a, on gay marriage in 2005, the the church was airing um, his like gay to straight video on TV in Texas. Uh, and so there's just like things like that. They've done a lot of like conferences at, at the UN and stuff talking about families and, and human yeah. development and prosperity and this and that. So it's like uh, some of the sort of things their anti-gay stuff is a little like maybe like softer or it seems softer, but it is still, um, yeah, reaching like the highest politicians of the world. So, yeah. yeah. And then I guess I would just add to this uh, sort of general subject that we're on. Uh, the church is very anti-abortion. Basically, you can't be, you, you're not seen as a full family until you have children, right? So that's basically like the life purpose of women is to have children uh, or anybody who can birth, but generally the church doesn't like trans people. So that is not yeah a part of that i mean it i'm sure there are lots of trans people in the church however uh the church also hates trans people um yeah yeah that's that's extremely disturbing and uh um, yeah yeah in japan also they yeah they campaign against uh um yeah they campaign against abortion and yeah. you know they attack lgbtq plus people as well um uh, as I found out uh, through doing research for this episode, yeah, it's a you know it's kind of tempting to just sort of frame this as sort of like really fringe, a far right, you know, chauvinism from the sort of like liberal perspective, but they're really sort of embodying the what is really uh, cis heteronormativity of institutions of capitalist imperialism, right? So oh, absolutely. they're just sort of like, and you know, especially considering the the general backlash against. Uh, reproductive rights of women yeah. uh, not just in the u.s but around the world right so it's they're just really representing the, the most reactionary currents in, in the in the society yeah i know that at one point i think they were also keeping track of couples birth rates which is just to me like a eugenics dog whistle which is i mean the whole church is eugenics basically but like that to me was just like disturbing in itself to see because I saw somebody in one of our groups had some of their uh, one of their parents' old papers, uh, and that was one of the things that was on the paper. So, just yeah, wow. it, it reads like the whole domestic supply of infants kind of thing. Honestly, I want to sort of bring it back to to Japan and Abe's assassination. As I mentioned, you know this this revelation of the UC's involvement really. Uh, change the narrative like it really before that it was sort of oh like this was an attack on democracy or like you know it almost seemed like it was going to be just tre be treated as a uh, just a regular terrorist attack but you know 
by Yamagami pulling his trigger, right? Like it really exposed the whole set of contradictions. And it just sort of like, I've been thinking a lot about sort of the impact his action had, you know, you know, yeah, like it's, it's kind of adventurous and counterproductive, uh, but still like, it's really like, it just sort of, I think tells us a lot about the ro- role of political violence uh, in general. Uh, and yeah, so, you know, this incident led to the sort of investigation into the, you know, the UC's involvement in Japanese politics. And uh, Japanese media reported that uh, the names of uh, 106 diet members uh, appeared on church membership lists and 80, 82 of them were uh, members of the LDP. So <laughs> this forced Prime Minister uh, Kishida to to shuffle and reorganize the cabinet. But it turns out in the reorganized cabinet, um, 19 of 54 members still had church connections. So it's really, yeah, it's kind of like comical outcome of this uh, so-called reorganization. It just really, uh, yeah, it, they're sort of omnipresent and, you know, they're really influential, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, to add insult to the injury, the government announced that they will hold a publicly funded state funeral for Abe this Tuesday coming up in Nippon Budokan. And uh, according to Japan Times, approximately 6,400 attendees are expected to attend the funeral, including dignitaries from over 190 different countries, uh, including U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris, uh, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi and Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albany and probably other politicians from across the spectrum. Yeah, however, uh, as I said in the beginning, you know, this plan for having state funeral for Abe is very unpopular and successive polls between uh, late July and early August conducted across Japan by different uh, newspapers found out the majority of uh, respondents already against this funeral, right? Um, and I'm basing this on uh, on the articles in uh, the Asia-Pacific Journal, Japan Focus. And uh, this collection is called the Abe Legacy uh, Compendium. This is edited by David McNeil, uh, who appeared on this podcast to talk about the, the militant labor struggle in Kansai. Uh, and he's the editor, and uh, there are 12 authors uh, featured in this collection, and uh, I'm drawing a lot of the data from, from this collection, and uh, I, uh, I highly recommend everyone to, to read it, uh, even though I don't really agree with some of the, the conclusion that these authors draw. Anyways, yeah, so this very unpopular funeral coming up, and I think this really, this idea really inflamed the people who were already critical of Abe's ties w- with the UC and other religious organizations, and of course, uh, large segments of the Japanese left who were already critical of Abe's legacies as a far-right politician. And furthermore, before the end of World War II, the emperor was the sole authority who could award a state funeral to those whom he considered to have done, quote-unquote, a service for the nation, uh, until the promulgation of the post-war constitution in 1947. And the only state funeral 
that was ever held after the war was for former Prime Minister Yoshida Shigeru in 1967. So this is going to be the second ever uh, state funeral that's going to be held for for politician outside of the, the imperial family. And I think people upset because of this association of uh, state funerals historically with the, the pre-war empire system and that the funeral will be held in the name of all Japanese people. And of course, with massive uh, costs subsidized by tax money, um, of course, as and you know, as well as the uh, atrocious records of Abe's tenure as a prime minister, uh, the, the longest-serving prime minister in Japanese history, all these really offended the uh, democratic sensibilities of uh, uh, many liberals and leftists in Japan, uh, who felt that their rights as citizens are being violated. So this is, in a way, a sort of uh, democratic struggle. Uh, this opposition to the state funeral. Um, yet, as we discussed, Abe uh, was a representative of the imperialist bourgeoisie as a class, as a ruling class. And I think this funeral itself is an expression of bourgeois class power against the working class and oppressed peoples of the world, uh, both Japanese and non-Japanese, uh, including the Okinawan and the Ainu people uh, who are oppressed and exploited by contemporary Japanese imperialism. It is a form of ideological class struggle. Um, nonetheless, this movement uh, is probably the, the biggest mass mobilization in the recent memory, probably the biggest since the, the mobilization against the, the new security registration in 2015. Uh, 4,000 people rallied in front of the Diet building uh, with over 400,000 people uh, nationwide signing an online petition calling for its cancellation. And just uh, yesterday, a man tried to set himself on fire in front of the prime minister's residence. Uh, he survived and uh, I believe he's still unconscious, but he left a note saying uh, he did it in opposition to the funeral. So in a way, this is coming sort of full circle, right? Like it started with Yamagami's assassination of Abe. Uh, it led to another sort of act of sort of indiv individual act of violence, albeit uh, self-harm in this case. And also this, this one uh, was conducted uh, as an act of protest as part of the sort of the, the mass movement. And, um, you know, like I said, this is not, this is more of a sort of the, the sort of guiding ideology of this movement is sort of more, uh, more democratic as opposed to like socialist, but it's still like it's involving a large number of people. And um, I'm not as optimistic to say that this is a situation with revolutionary potentials comparable to the George Floyd uprising of 2020 in the United States. In my opinion, Japan currently has no revolutionary party organized and theoretically defined enough to, to lead the masses towards a, a proletarian socialist revolution. And this cycle of mass mobilization is likely going to either fizzle out or be co-opted by the established opposition parties. Uh, but like I said, you know, if Yamagami didn't pull his trigger that day, none of this would have happened. So, you know, his assassination, Abe's assassination has really exposed the, the fundamental reactionary and anti-people nature of the state. And, you know, it's 
the the masses don't really always have a coherent ideology, but they do, you know, have, uh, especially in this case, have, have resumed grievances. And, you know, like I said, Abe is really representative of this capitalist imperial system. So, yeah, I think this is a really interesting uh, conjuncture that we live in today and uh, that has significance uh, not only for working class people in Japan, but to uh, the proletariat and oppressed peoples of the world, everyone who was exploited and oppressed by Japanese imperialism uh, through organizations such as the, the Unification Church. So, yeah, so that's my uh, concluding thought. Uh, do you want to add anything to that or do you want to uh, have any final comments? Yeah, I guess it's just going to be interesting to see how things continue to develop. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm just glad we got this opportunity, though, to, to like, like you're saying, to kind of, I don't know, a lot gets lost when people talk about this and to bring it back to like, I don't know, that this is more than just like an isolated incident. Yeah, there's just, yeah, there's a, a lot that goes into this and that it has everything to do with imperialism. And yeah. Actually, I forgot to mention, there is also this discourse of like, um, I did a QTR on my Twitter uh, of like, this one profile on Twitter saying that oh like yeah UC is involved but you know this is you know about class or you know this this is about you know precarity and this is a class issue kind of sort of typical kind of like a class reductionist way I mean he's not wrong this person is not wrong his class background definitely had a role to play uh, we really have to look at sort of you know again like globally like you know, imperialism has a lot to do with this. Even Japanese capitalism uh, or capitalism in Japan has could not have developed the way it is without the uh, Japan's participation in the, in the Korean War, Vietnam War, and the sort of general plundering of the resources and labor power from the global south. So these things are all connected. And the UC was a sort of uh, uh, useful instrument for the imperialist bourgeoisie of japan and the u.s and yeah other places yeah and i guess all i would really want to say is just that i think a lot of people have a tendency of thinking that that was something um that was like in the 70s and 80s and they don't realize that that's still their role in the world um as a tool of counterinsurgency or counterrevolution or whatever but yeah yeah. i mean yeah even look you look at today's uh stuff with sort of like rod of iron ministries specifically and uh how like in Japan specifically, they're helping to like make QAnon events. Uh, like in America, you know, they're literally trading their militia for war against leftists. So it's you know, continual stuff. Yeah, for sure. All right, thank you so much again for coming on the show. I'm yeah, I'm really glad we got to have this conversation. It was uh, really fascinating and really, I mean, a lot of it was quite disturbing as well, but. Uh, mm. Yeah, really. We'll, we'll see how, how this, this opposition to state funeral turns out and the funeral itself on Tuesday coming up. I'm sure it's going to be a really sort of the showcasing of nationalism and imperialism. But, you know, it's we have to uh, sort of analyze it through a sort of, uh, yeah, historical materialist uh, perspective and uh, through the lens of class struggle. So and, and of course, the revolutionary movements around the world, it's a it's a the class struggle is global and um yeah and this surge of upsurge of fascism everywhere it's um yeah 
it's going to be a it's going to be even more turbulent yeah Yeah. long ride for sure all right uh before you go uh would you like to plug your work uh or connect uh, listeners to to your online presence yeah definitely uh, so we have uh, an Instagram uh, for deprogramming imperialism under that name, deprogramming imperialism, all one word. Uh, for deprogramming imperialism, we also have a Twitter. Uh, since the name was too long for a username, we went with no underscore more underscore cults. Uh, personally, uh, my uh, Twitter is at Alisa Majub, A L I, oh, sorry, Alisa underscore Majub. A-L-I-S-A underscore M-A-H-J-O-U-B. Uh, and then I've also got a Patreon under Elisa Majub. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <hey>. uh, <laughs> so that's, that, that works for me. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much, Heisan and Elisa. And uh, yeah, all the best of luck with your work. And uh, yeah, long live international solidarity. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Okay. I feel like fucking Abe. Fuck my haters, Lord, it's I'm a fucking Abe. Abe. I feel like fucking Abe. Fuck my haters, Lord, it's I'm a fucking
fuck life。全部君のためなのになぜ分かってくんない。もう構わない。I got motherfucking good life。